Well, good morning, church. Turn in your Bibles with me, if you would, to the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter. And let's just jump straight into the Word this morning. 1 Peter, chapter 4, beginning in verse 12. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering. As though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted because of the name of Christ, you're blessed for the spirit of glory of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or a thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, okay, let that just soak in for just a second. If you suffer as a Christian, don't be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. For it's time for judgment to begin with the family of God, and it begins with us. What will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. Now, that's a passage of Scripture that I would prefer not be in the Bible. (laughs) And we love our Bible. We know that it is the 100% inscripturated, inspired Word of God Himself. If the cover says genuine leather, an animal died for it. Let me tell you, (laughs) we believe. In what this word says, but there's certain passages, there's certain even entire books of this Bible I personally wish simply were not there. And this passage, it's naughty, it's difficult. Words like suffering according to God's will. Oh my. And one of the greatest myths theological errors, and I would say even heresies in the church today is that of the issue of the believer and hardship. We've been extensively instructed in how to prosper well, but most of us have been woefully under-instructed in how to suffer well. And let me say to you that both components of both blessing and suffering are normative components of the Christian experience. They are a part of this life. And for those that would somehow say that you can have all of one and completely avoid another, have to overlook a lot of the Bible to get to that conclusion. Paul, in writing, he said, I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole counsel of God. 
And this morning, I want to help proclaim that whole counsel of both of these experiences as being part of that experience. Paul wrote, writes to Timothy about enduring hardship as a soldier. He goes on and he uses two other analogies as that of an athlete, that of a farmer, and all three of these professions, if you wish, all entail hardship, discipline, stuff that we would rather not have any part of. That's why we, we love sitting on the couch on a Sunday afternoon. Oh, yes, hit him harder. <laughs> because we're not the ones in the chiropractor on the next morning. And yet, Paul is writing something very important to his charge here. And we see extremes of both thought and theology and practice about this. One extreme is that somehow that all hardship is consequential. Everything that you experience in life, if you'll just modify your behavior, then all of the hardship will go away. You've heard part of that. Or if you're a good, charismatic Pentecostal, everything that is uncomfortable is the devil. Come on. I rebuke thee, I bind that loose and bind on you, stand on your head in Jesus' name. I mean, we got, we, we got our, we got our Pentecost down. So we just blame the devil. Then we've got the answer where you just, brother, you just need more faith. It's not just faith, it's faith. <laughs> got to get some Tulsa on that. You need more faith. And somehow that can become an antidote that we can just kind of spray it around like bug spray. And nothing will get to us. How many of you know that's a bit problematic? Somebody says to me, brother, you need more faith. Just go. <laughs> because faith is not something I can just work up. Faith is a gift from God. He has to impart it to me in the moment that I need it. But suffering according to God's will? What does that look like? My goodness. And I know some great folks doing all the right things, checking the list, checking the boxes on their righteous list, check, 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 they're doing everything right, yet still are in the midst of hardship in their life. What is the deal? We sing the songs about victory. We sing the songs about what this cross has overcome, who this Jesus is, and yet... Here we are. How do we reconcile all of this? Turn to the, to the book of Daniel. And I'm going to blow through three chapters of Daniel in about 15 minutes. So strap on. <laughs> Chapter 1 of Daniel, I call this forwarded to Babylon. And we find that Nebuchadnezzar has come, he's besieged Jerusalem, 
He's taken off some spoils. But the primary thing that he's after is the, the best youth of that particular culture. And let me say this before I forget it, because I'm old and I forget a lot. <laughs> is that the spoils of any nation are always the next generation. That's the true spoils of a nation. It's the coming generation. And it says he took some of the finest young men. Look at the qualifications here. Without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, qualified to serve in the king's palace. I mean, these are the D1 picks right here. These are the kids going to Ivy League schools on scholarship. These, these are the best of the best of the best that have now been conscripted. They have been forwarded out of everything that they've known. Their culture, their families, their, even their language, even their names are about to be radically changed. And yet these men were set apart to Babylon. And let me say by extension is that while we recognize Babylon as a physical geographical place, there is a world system known as Babylon which represents everything of the world, that which is opposed to the kingdom of heaven that we currently find ourselves in. And if you wish, the church, not unlike these three Hebrew men, representing the best of what the kingdom has to offer, we found ourselves in Babylon. We, the church is a church in exile. And increasingly so, we feel that disparity, at least I hope you do. I hope you feel, and you every day that you live, you find yourself looking and saying, has everybody gone nuts but me? Increasingly out of sync with the worldview of the day, the thought, the talk, the entertainment, whatever it might be, very much like these Four Hebrew kids that came out, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these four Hebrew boys, men that came out, found themselves in a very foreign place. And yet, they were there for something. To represent who God was. To not only this ungodly king and kingdom, but to everyone that would experience what was about to happen. And let me say this to you, is that the greatest testimony of the church is not so much what it does as the distinctiveness of who it is and to whom it belongs. Very important we understand that. Because many times we see the church as something that we do. Let me say, first and foremost, the church is someone that you are. You were chosen, the Bible says. We were grafted into this family, and not because we made a good decision on a Sunday some years ago, but because God decided. And the church represents something of the kingdom on the earth today. While we're referred to as aliens and strangers, not because we're alien and strange, said this is not our home. And I trust that every day, and not just because I'm older than most of you and I'm getting closer. <laughs> I 
Some of you laugh at that. That really disturbs me a lot. But that sense of this, I, I, who are these people? I don't, I don't even understand the language that's happening around me any longer. Wow. And these, and these youths, it says, in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired, he found them ten times better than the rest of the Babylonian kingdom. Ten times. And I believe that it's in that moment that we find favor that comes. Forded, then we move over to chapter 2, and we find the favor of God coming, particularly to Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, it troubles him, he goes to his cabinet, the court, the Congress, everybody he can find. Can you tell me about this dream? Nobody can. He says, we're going to whack some heads off here. Daniel says, whoa, whoa, there's, there's one guy, there's this little dude from, that you brought over, and he can, he's pretty good with this stuff. Daniel comes in and he tells Nebuchadnezzar the dream, what it means. It's a leadership crisis, which no one could address but Daniel. And this is what Nebuchadnezzar says, Daniel chapter 2, verses 46 through 49. Surely your God is the God of gods. I mean, here's the most powerful leader on the planet in that moment giving this testimony. Your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries. Wow. Saints, this is the type of access and favor that God intends for you and me. Listen to me. I've had the privilege on different occasions, on different occasions, literally around the world, to be able to, to have found myself with government leaders, figuring out how to reveal mysteries, how to, how to quote, speak a word from heaven into certain situations. And God's... And, and, and it's an amazing process to watch, but it's not about me. It's about prophecy always draws people closer to God. This is what's happening here. And it says, and then Daniel requested the king do some things for his friends. And it says that they were placed as administrators over Babylon. But it's amazing, though, how quickly things can change. We move over to the third chapter. And we find that this narcissistic leader, this king, has created a monument to himself, 90 feet tall, 9 feet wide, and he's hired a worship team, a PR department. So that every time you hear the band crank up, when you hear this song, everybody hit the dirt. Worship this image. And some folk that had been a little bit jealous of watching these dang foreigners come in here, And to find the access now to the very king of an entire kingdom. They begin to bring accusation against these young men. And they find themselves in front of Nebuchadnezzar. And he inquires, is it true? So yeah, it's true. Furious with rage, it says. Now all of a sudden now we've gone from favor. You're amazing. 
He's a God of gods and a God of kings. And you're incredible that you can access this God and this information. And now we've gone from favor to fury. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king. Now imagine this. Imagine. We don't need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. In other words, I ain't talking to you about this. A little bit like Jesus in front of Pilate, whatever you say. Jesus knowing that at any moment he could have done this. We don't need to defend ourselves. If we're thrown into your furnace, the God we serve is able to save. But even if he doesn't, we won't let you know something, friend. We will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Let me tell you, this is manly. Stupid, but manly. Because here's the most powerful person. We've got a furnace over here. So he orders it cranked up. So that these three men can be thrown into this fire. It was so hot. It says that even the handlers that were about to approach it, they were killed. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego find themselves in this furnace. And Nebuchadnezzar is there to witness the display of his brutality. There's only one problem. The numbers aren't right. <laughs> one, two, three, four. Where's the other dude come from? As a matter of fact, he's not just a dude. He looks like, wow, one of the gods. And so Meshach, me, they're walking around. They're just like, cool. And Nebuchadnezzar's suitably freaked out at this moment. Hey, why aren't you dead? You zombies? Come out of there. So these three Hebrew boys walk out. Now, remember, they'd been thrown in fully clothed. Fairly hot fire. Clothes tend to combust pretty quick. And they walk out. They're looking good. No smell of fire. Nothing singed at all on them. They're not even sweating. Nebuchadnezzar's like, whoa, this is too weird. You see, these young men were willing to lay aside their relevance in that moment. Their conformity to the norm that was being foisted upon them. And it's it's interesting, it was in the context of worship that caused this particular conflict. Stay, Stay with me on that. And yet, one of the greatest tragedies of the contemporary church is conformity to the world under the guise of relevance. Wrongly confiscated and complicated its mission to the world, thinking that it's conformity to it, whereas, you know, we've got to use their methodology, we've got to use their technology, we've got to use their sound, we've got to use their marketing, we've got to use whatever, because if we're going to reach them, we've got to speak their language. Uh Uh-oh. I read this article this week, very cranky article. So I'll quote it and then step off so you don't get mad at me. Relevance is required that we lay down our mantle as a prophetic people who boldly preach soul-piercing truth in favor of the methods of a salesman. The result is innumerable people being added to an ever-increasing lukewarm stew. Relevance has neutered the church and has drained it of its power. 
So the real question has always been, does the church look like the world or is the world looking more like the church? Hmm. James 4 talks about friendship with the world being hatred toward God. Wow. And these young men are thrown into that fire. And coming out, Nebuchadnezzar once again, he says, wow, wow. He says, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego basically be whacked up, their houses be turned into places of rubble. For no other God can save in this way. And then he promoted those boys again. But let me say this. As righteous as these young men were, as trained, as excellent as they were, it did not save them from the furnace. It did not protect them from that moment of conflict. And at any given time, we're going to find ourselves in one of three places. And it begs three questions for us as well. One, are we trying to live our lives to avoid the furnace? Secondly, once we're in the fire, how do we respond? And then lastly, once out, what got produced in us? What do we have to say about it? The first question is, are we trying to avoid it? And we've heard quite a bit of emphasis throughout the body of Christ about do this and get this and, you know, kind of cause and effect and sowing and reaping. And these are very biblical principles. Don't get me wrong. But the reality is you cannot avoid the fire of the dealings of God. Sorry to be the one to tell you. But actually, I wasn't the first. Peter did a pretty good job. In 1 Peter 1, 3 through 7, says, In this you greatly rejoice that know for a while, for a while, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine. Wow. You can't live your life in such a ordered way to avoid the fire of the dealings of God. Consider Job for a moment. There's another book I wish weren't in the Bible. I mean, here's God's testimony about Job. Not one of Job's friends, not Job's mama or daddy. This is God's testimony about the man. Job 1. Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Thank you. And in 40 some odd chapters of God messing with him, I mean breaking a brother down. Health, resource, family, anything that could be touched, he touched it. And yet God's testimony about Job is he's the model. Wow. You see, what was lacking in Job was a true understanding 
of who God really was. You see, you don't really know God until you've been in the fire with him. Sorry. And Job had a completely mis, he completely misread who God was. I had an encounter with someone recently and they said to me, I know everything I know about God. This is not what God would do. And I thought, and I felt the fire in the furnace go up. (laughs) Don't kid yourself. This whole experience and this blink of an eye we call life is about the revelation of God making himself better known to you. And don't think God won't use everything at his disposal to do it. Paul, God, take this thing away, whatever it is. It's this and God said, nope. What do you mean, no? I'm Paul, man. Saul, Paul, apostle, you know all of this? Nope. There's something about me you don't know yet. And it's through this affliction of pain I'm going to teach you about grace. Because it's the only way you're going to get it. Oh my gosh. Fire is the solution for that. And that same fire is the refiner's fire that the Bible talks about over and over and over again. That fire that draws out the impurities of silver and gold so that what remains is of the greatest value and the greatest worth. But then the question is, what's in the fire? How do we respond? Now, I don't know about you, but anything to do with fire, I want to avoid. Hell being at the top of the list. But whether it's eternal or whether it's temporal, I hear the word fire and I'm like, seriously, don't want any part of it. And so the question for us is, once we're there, how, what, what do we do? Because someone said once, if you're in the middle of hell, don't stop. Keep moving. <laughs> and, but there, but, but. A few years ago, my dear covenant friend, Duke Bendix, was exercising in his basement. And I made jokes about exercise being a blasphemous word. (laughs) And he's on his exercise machine and he has a cardiac event. Now, the irony in that will just let it set aside for a moment. And over the next few days, My friend almost died. Two surgeries within an 18-hour period of time. Complications after the surgery. It was terrible. The fire he went through in his body, his family, the pain, the questions. The doctors giving half answers, knowing that they didn't want to give us the full answer. And what was that about? My friend was righteous physically, eating right. He was exercising for heaven's sakes. But God 
had something about himself he wanted to reveal to my friend and his family and the friends around that situation. Duke had done everything right regarding his physical body, but there was something congenital that in that moment, at 60 plus years old, it showed up. What should have killed him didn't. But that didn't keep him out of the fire. You see, the fire burns away everything so that we can clearly see two things in that moment. Number one, that we can find Jesus. I tell people all the time that they come and say the sad story of the circumstance in their life, and I really have only two questions for them. Number one, where is God? It's an important question. Let me tell you, you get in the fire, you better look around, find Jesus. You know why? He was there before you were. He was waiting on you. He doesn't just show up with a 911 call when you get in pain. He was always there because this was an ordained moment, an ordered moment for Jesus to show you something about himself you would never have gotten otherwise. The second is to look around and see who's in here with me. Nebuchadnezzar didn't send those boys in one at a time. They were in fellowship. Come on. Hey, what do you think about this? <laughs> cool. Can you imagine the testimony and the story these boys had afterwards? Remember when? Imagine going to McDonald's at that point or McFalafel or whatever it was. And those, but, but imagine in that particular moment, people... People are looking on and say, they're, they're, that's them. That's, that's them. They didn't burn up. They're the asbestos guys. They're zombies. <laughs> Who's in there with you? Who's on your favorites list? The ones that dial through when you've got D&D on your phone. The ones that come through at 3 o'clock in the morning. I need you. I'm there. And if you don't know who those band of brothers are or the Yaya sisterhood or whatever it's called, <laughs> guess what? Get in a small group and figure it out. Yeah. And then you stay in that fire until you're fully cooked. You know, you go to a restaurant, you know what it says right there? It says, consuming what? Raw or uncooked foods might be dangerous. Let me just tell you, some dangerous Christians running around because they're half-baked. That's why we have shallow discipleship in the church today. Men and women that they get a little fire in their life and they're hopping out of the fire. Woo, hot in here. My mother used to bake, she'd pull something out of the oven, she'd stick something down in it to figure she ain't done. You know what she did? She shoved it back in the oven. And let me tell you something, you can try to jump out prematurely, God will shove you back in later. And it's a whole lot easier to get cooked the first time than the second time. And listen to me. 
It's heat that tempers steel. It makes it strong. Stephen and Elise Law. Stephen is our youth, our, our young adults pastor here. And they got a testimony. They got a report back from their OB saying there's serious problems with your unborn child. As a matter of fact, we're not sure she'll even survive the birth. And if she does, she's going to have severe challenges throughout her entire life. And this couple, we watched them go through that furnace. I don't know of a furnace quite like a bad report of what's inside a womb. And they stood and prayed. Willow was born. She's defied every diagnosis. You could say, well, they had great faith. I promise you, not every moment of every day they didn't. But you listen to Pastor Stephen stand up here and speak, and you hear something that was forged in the furnace. He didn't get it out of seminary. He didn't get it from a book. He didn't get it from listening to sermons. He walked in that fire. And he found God. And it forged something in his life. That when that man speaks, he speaks like a man that's got decades on his life. But how did it happen? It happened through pain. And then once out, what's our testimony? Woo! I'm glad that's over. <laughs> Don't do that! Oh, no. That wasn't the testimony at all. You know, the greatest lie we try to foist on those outside the kingdom coming in is that somehow they've just stepped into a pain-free, conflict-free existence. Can I tell you, it's not the whole counsel of God. It is a lie. People coming into this life of discipleship are just exchanging one set of challenges for another. Now, the problem is the end result of not coming in is that your challenges last eternally. But coming in, i got to tell you, Jesus has created a lot of conflict for me. He's let me walk into a lot of situations that it wasn't just my stupidity or my hubris. It wasn't just me not reading the moment right. It was God saying, whoop, here we go. 2008, we had a financial meltdown in this country. Many of you still recovering from that. Many of you found yourselves in a fire of circumstance that was not of your making. And let me tell you, many times we think that the fuel for the fire is somehow the devil. No, it's not. The fuel for the fire is this thing called life. Life is hard, ladies and gentlemen. Life produces challenges. People banging to your bumper on I-66, you know, and it's the money thing. And, you know, that spouse still don't know who you are. Children. Germs. People sneezing on you. <laughs> Too close on the metro. You know what I'm talking about. And many times we, we see the flames and we immediately, in Jesus' name, I mean, we just, but the reality is, Many times, it's just life. It's the fuel for the fire. 
It's one of the things that distinguishes this life from the real one. It's a real one. It's conflict-free. It is pain-free. It is one with no regrets, and it is one that doesn't have a metro. (laughs) And our testimony to the world is not pain-free. It's not conflict-free. It's a but God. But God. Years ago, and I'm closing. That's a preacher lie. (laughs) But we used to have a moment where we would get down to the altar and we would yell, fire! But it wasn't fire. It was F-I-Y-A-H. Fire! It's kind of the battle cry for revival. Fire! We'd pray for people, hoping for some kind of courtesy drop or some kind of wiggle or something. Fire! And we use it as a euphemism for revival. Let me just tell you, be careful what you pray for. God says, you want some fire? You really want some fire? You really want a greater experience with me? <laughs> Meet me in the furnace! Be careful what you pray for. You might get it. Fire. So where are you right now? Oh, brother, I'm just trying to avoid the furnace. Good luck with that. And when you figure out how to do it, write a book, get, on, get a TED Talk, and start preaching. Because it's not in the Bible. God who wouldn't spare his own son. When did you think you were going to get cut a special deal? Why? Oh God, why? Why? It's always the wrong question. Because invariably right behind it is the accusation. Of if you love me, then. Happens all the time. And God is saying, you don't understand. It's the same way when your mom or daddy were wearing your backsides out. I'm doing this because I love you. <laughs> Look around. If you're in the fire this morning. Have you found the fourth man? Because I promise you, he is there. If you're looking, he's there. Because he's always been there. And look around and find out who are your band of brothers in there with you. And then check your temperature and be sure you're fully cooked. That you're really done. First Peter talks about that we're being built into a spiritual house, which means that each one of us brings a brick. But you know, the part of making a brick buildable is cooking it. And you realize that a half-baked brick 
can't support the weight of that which is about to be built around it and upon it. And you see men and women and constantly, they don't fit in a building. Well, I just don't fit in that church. <laughs> this is my 10th church this year. I just haven't found a place for my special brick. <clears throat> or you're a brickhead. <clears throat> Let me tell you, perhaps the issue is why you haven't been built with is that your brick hasn't been fully cooked yet. And the weight that God intends for you to bear, to be placed into a building of his ordination, some of you need to be refired. Where are you today? Because you're in one of three places. Heading in, in, or headed out. And there's a way to navigate all three places. Pray with me. Lord, help us hear something well today. God, not that we fear the launderer's soap or the purifier's fire. Because, God, we know that this is the process of sanctification, of us becoming less of us and more of you. Drawing out every impurity that's of human origin so that what will remain is that of great value.